Yes, mate. Mm-hmm. It's like, uh, you know, the episode of Spaced where the guys just like rave into the traffic light <laughs> sound. <laughs> yes. At the stop, you know, uh, the, the crossing. It's like that. Yeah. It's really, uh, yeah, quite a tuneful call. Just needs a little bit of... Yeah, it's got some rhythm to it, doesn't it? So that's a very confident little creature, that is. That thing is fearless. I'm imagining a frog floating in water. I think it's an explosive breeder. I think it's quite a large... I think it's from mm, Africa. Well, no one multiple accounts. <laughs> okay, it's so a that small was the frog. call of Boana Faber, which is also known as the blacksmith tree frog. Why it's called the blacksmith tree frog, I don't know, and I could not find out. And it's incredibly frustrating. The blacksmith, a tree. Yeah, frog. or smith frog. Blacksmiths. What are they? They're metal workers. Yeah can't see how a frog would do that it would be i mean frog high heat hot metal be an awful environment they'd dry out they'd go all crispy it would be uh you don't want to have a frog in a forge no way no way but i picked them because they're from brazil northeastern argentina and southeastern paraguay so maybe our lizards from previous episode would have heard them i feel like it's there is a little bit out of the way but um living in their tropical Humid forests. Now, you said explosive breeding. I can't confirm that because of I had such a hard time finding any meaningful information on them. But they do they are meant to breed in temporary pools at times, which to me would suggest explosive breeding, because you can't exactly breed in a temporary pool all along. But at the same time they will use permanent pools too. So I don't even know. They're a gorgeous frog. Then they've got this perfect like line right down the middle of their head, this perfect like black line that separates them. They're a sort of tan, dappled tree frog with this just racing stripe straight down the middle. Beautiful. And long legs, I mm-hmm. assume, if they live in trees. Well, for climbing those trees, absolutely. What's the scientific name again? Boana? Boana Faber. F-A-B-E-R. Faber. Oh, yeah, they're cool. Right? Yeah, they're cool. They are cool. Oh, they're nice. Yeah, they look a bit like the Pelophylax in Thailand, don't they? Yes. Bit of convergent evolution yeah. style. Very nice. Very nice. It, yeah, classic tree frog look. Yeah. So Big long legs. Thank you. Real nice jumper. Boana Faber for introducing us to episode 123. I'm Ben Marshall, co-hosting and guessing frog calls is Tom Major. Guessing incorrectly. Well, None of us have ever got one yeah, right, because it's, and I don't think we ever it's will. It's a near impossible task, let's face it. We've guessed them without being told, but only when given, like, exceptionally easy clues. Well, and it's a species that we might have actually interacted with firsthand. Yeah, I've never heard or seen of this frog before, but now, for at least a few days, I'll yeah. remember it's cool. Now your existence is enriched by the uh, mm. the presence of Boana Faber. And everyone else listening. Yeah. So, yeah. This is, as you said, episode 123. This is called Highlights, the podcast about reptile and amphibian science. And this week, we've got a patron-selected episode. And I'm actually going to get his name right this time. This is a patron episode for John Faithful Hamer. So, big up, John. Thanks very much indeed for the support. And John wanted an episode about Pantherophis gloidae, which is the eastern fox snake. And... We're dedicating this episode to Ryan Wolf and Jessica Ferguson, a.k.a. Queensnake, who are John's favourite two herp- Canadian herpetologists. So some big love out to the herpetologists of Canada. Oh, hence the Eastern 
Fox Snake Connection. Yeah. <laughs> it's all coming together. Yeah, it's all coming together. And so we're doing a paper about the movements and habitat use of eastern fox snakes. And the title is Movements and Habitat Use of Eastern Fox Snakes in Two Areas Varying in Size and Fragmentation. And this was published in the Journal of Herpetology by Roe, Blue Endemers and Lockheed way back in 2012. Now, before we go too far with this paper and talking about the habits and tear ways. tear down the foundations of fox snake taxonomy. <laughs> yes. I went down a bit of a rabbit hole with the taxonomy of this species. And a fox it hole. seems to me a fox a foxhole, Ben. Wow. So just like the species we were covering in the last episode, Phymaturus spurcus, which was formerly Phymaturus spectabilis and a bunch of other names which have all been rolled into one. The species we're describing or we're talking about here, the eastern fox snake, is actually no longer known by the name that it was known as when this paper was written, the name and the title of the paper. So it was Pantherophis gloidi. It's now Pantherophis vulpinus, which in my opinion is way cooler because vulpinus, you know, fox. fox. Yeah. It's a fox snake. Yeah. yeah. It's not a big snake, you know. Well, it's, I guess it's relatively large. They're quite chunky, like a meter, meter and a half at a push they get to. But Ben, do you know why? Obviously, the scientific name Pantherophis vulpinus now. Mm -hmm. But do you know why it was originally called the fox snake? Can you guess? I would guess it's because they would sneak into people's hen coops and eat their eggs slash hens. And that is something that people associate with foxes. That's my first guess. My second guess is that they primarily eat foxes. Mm. Well... You're actually, I mean, that first one is extremely compelling and I'm wondering if I've missed something, but they're both wrong as far as I could tell. According to the reptile database, it's actually named after Reverend Charles Fox, who was an Episcopal minister in the 1800s. So they named a common name of a snake after him, which is well random. And I couldn't work out why. There's nothing online about this guy. That's really odd. Really random. Don't really understand that. But either way, it works because... They also do have like a sort of rusty red head. Mm. They've got a really beautiful rusty red head and they've got these big blotches down the back. It's like darker blotches on a tan sort of coloured background. It was named after him as opposed to named by him. As far as I could tell, yeah. yeah. Okay. Weird. Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, we got these nice metre and a half long snakes. Well, I wasn't hugely familiar with this species, to be honest. I kind of knew what it looked like. And, you know, sometimes... Spatial ecology papers can get a bit dry. So I had a look on YouTube and I will come back to the name thing. But um, I just YouTubed it. You know, what, what are they like? What do they do? Because I feel like sometimes what these papers lack is actually just like some nice pictures or like a little video. Just I so mean, you get sort of... let's face it, whenever these papers have a, cool pi a species specific picture or a landscape picture, we do tend to comment on how nice it is because there is something very grounding about having that information visually. You know, it depends on the journal. Sometimes journals hate it and they, you're, you're told to remove it. Sometimes you don't have space. Fine. But there when it's there, be space, when it's there, I do appreciate it. We're visual creatures. Anyway, so I had a little YouTube search and I wanted to get a handle on what they're about. I found some cool stuff. First thing I found, which was really exciting, was two male snakes actually battling. They were doing the classic snake dance, the, the so-called... The wrestle. Yeah. yeah, it should be called the wrestle, but they call it ritualistic combat, don't they? Which is a weird name for when the combat doesn't really hurt either party. They're just sort of, they're wrestling with no one getting hurt. Yeah. 
and you know trying to pin each other down so they're sort of twisting up and then trying to get their head on top of the other snake's head pound them down and they usually do that as a sort of battle for supremacy over mating rights for females. So there's two males doing that. And they were actually doing it in the water, which was pretty cool. Hmm. And there was another snake on the bank of the video, which I found. And that there was some suggestion that was a female. But I looked at it and I was like, I don't know. It could have been a male. <laughs> it's just, a, just an observer. Just a passive observer. Yeah. yeah. But they also, a lot of the videos, something else that these snakes were doing is when they're approached, they do the little tail rattle. You know, like the... Oh, yeah. Makes a noise. A bit scary. And we've talked about that in the past and whether or not it's it pre-evolved before rattlesnakes and rattlesnakes yeah, just a, evolved like to have a really, really rattly one. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, before we get stuck in, though, the name of this species. So it should be Pantherophis vulpinus. And basically this whole confusing thing. Basically, in the past, fox snakes were split into two populations, right? Well, they are. They are now. And they were split into two species based on the two chunks their populations form. You've basically got two populations. You had a big one on the left and we're near like Lake Erie. Okay, so we're up on the border between Canada and North America. And these snakes kind of surround Lake Erie. Um, and there's like a couple of other big lakes. But basically the species, the fox snakes as a whole are forming two populations one on the left one on the right of like lake erie basically broadly and there's a split in the middle where the it doesn't connect there's like a 250 kilometer gap between these two populations and so historically they were thought of as the two species were the left population and the right population which are geographically split by 250 kilometers right so that kind of made sense but then there was this paper in 2012 that changed all that and they did some work looking at these snakes they did a little bit very very tiny touch of genetic stuff and they suggested that actually it was snakes on either side of the mississippi river that were different and they, they redrew the line between the two species um so they made it so that ones on the left of the mississippi river were one species and the ones on the right of the mississippi river were another species and this was a bit confusing because the localities of the holotypes, which is like the very first snakes that were used to describe the two species, which were Pantherophis gloidae and Pantherophis vulpinus, were both, both the holotypes were within the range of the eastern form, which is the eastern side of the Mississippi River, right? So instead of having those two, because right. obviously you can't right. have two individuals in the same, yeah, you need one from the western lot. Well, yeah, you'd have two holotypes from the same species representing two different species it would be exceptionally confusing and completely nonsensical exactly yeah. which is what this whole situation is so <laughs> gloidae which is what they're called in this paper in the title is actually recognized now as a synonym of vulpinus so the eastern lot the eastern side of the mississippi river are pantherophis vulpinus and the western side they renamed and they called it pantherophis ramspotti right so you've got Instead of having the two disjunct populations which are not connected as two species, Gloidae and, and Vulpinus, you've now got Vulpinus for the eastern side and Ramspotti for the western Split side of the Mississippi by the River. Mississippi, right, yeah. And this kind of makes sense, right? Because there's this like historical biogeographic angle where the Mississippi River was once this gigantic glacier in the Pleistocene mm -hmm. and that glacier split fox snakes right down the middle and... 
following the glacier melting, you know, we're talking about things happening in the last million years. The big glacier that was the Mississippi River melted, but then it was a massive river because you got all this glacial runoff and it was huge and the fox. Well, and you think of actually even just post-glacial landscapes are probably not super compatible for immediate recolonization by snakes. It takes a bit of time for your pioneering species to come back in after a glacier has retreated. Yep, exactly. But the thing is, right, the paper that came out in 2012, which describes the two species on either side of the Mississippi River, it was based on very little genetic information. There was one gene in there. And actually, even the one gene that was being investigated, there was actually evidence of mixing between the two species. And they suggest that, yes, there was this historical glacier and river separating the two. But actually now, in modern times, they're able to mix again. And there's been some mixing post-glacially in the modern period so you've got that this situation where okay there's some very very minor genetic differences much more sampling of the genetics is required i think to give this any substance and then you've also got this situation where actually these two species are mixing and then you look at the morphological data that they've used to describe how they're different and there isn't any there literally isn't any the only difference between (laughs) the two species is how many blotches they have down the back which as we know, and as we've discussed a lot, the colorist, the color patterns of animals are not really a relevant descriptor of species, certainly not taken alone. Yeah, it gets tricky, doesn't it? Because... Yeah, it, it's yeah. not even a big difference. It's like the Western ones have like 42 blotches and the Eastern ones have like 37 blotches. So yeah, basically... As far as I could see, there's not really any compelling, you know, when you describe a species, you want to be looking for a few different things. You want to be looking for the fact that it's uh, geographically isolated, ideally, so it's not mixing with any other species. Or if it is, you can have a contact zone. They need to have their own large ranges, right? And then that is kind of tied up with whether or not they're sort of like this unit, which is evolving separately. And if these two populations are mixing, in my opinion, they're no longer units which are evolving separately they've now since the mississippi river is no you know the mississippi river today is nowhere nothing like the barrier to gene flow that it was in the pleistocene period it's just a little river now yeah the mixing one's a little bit tricky because it's like how much mixing actually you know it's mixing plus offspring that are genetically viable right i mean you can get mixing with things that are separate species and still produce offspring but you still keep them as separate species because it doesn't really have any onward <laughs> onward uh, trajectory. It's, it's sort of, you no, know, yeah. those offspring are doomed. It, yeah, no, All the mixing is very minor natural. and it's, it's, you know, it's not actually making that much of a difference. Yeah, but you want to be looking at whether or not they're separate evolutionary units. Yeah. You also want to be looking at whether they have genetic differences and you want to be looking at whether or not they have morphological differences. And in my opinion, these snakes... Panthrophus vulpinus and Panthrophus ramspotti, as far as I can see, have none of the above. So in my opinion, and I'm really, I would love to be um, challenged on this. And I think, you know, I'm far from like a big expert in this. But yeah, I don't see that there's any difference between the Eastern and Western fox snakes, to be honest. But so yeah, just get in touch if you disagree. We, yeah, so they're just fox snakes. But anyway, regardless of all that, in this paper, we're talking about the eastern fox snake, <laughs> which was formerly Panthropus gloidi and is now known as Panthropus vulpinus. Right, and they are actually at a location that it would be, would be that? Yes, they yeah. are. Okay, then. <laughs> right? Oh, good question. Ben. Because exactly, question now you're working on using geography to find species, which is a really... I don't know, you can get very circular sometimes, especially if you have overlapping 
ranges of two different groups. So these guys are, this studies to the north, it's on a little peninsula, essentially, on the northern coast of Lake Erie, just uh, south east of Detroit. Yeah, so they're definitely eastern population. Okay. Yeah, so they are definitely Pantherophis vulpinus, yeah. There we go. According to the current taxon. <laughs> For now. But yeah, 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 they are, they are Pantherophis vulpinus. And yeah, let's talk about Point Pele, Point Pele National Park, where this study took place. It is like this really sharp peninsula, isn't yeah. it, that pokes into Lake Erie. And uh, yeah, so we're right on the sort of border between Canada and America. Lake Erie is sort of very close. Well, Cleveland's on the coast and uh, Detroit is up on the other side, the northern coast. They've also got a place called London. Of course. Adorable. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it was, let's talk about what they found out. Basically, they're looking at these snakes, they're radio tracking them. So they're putting little transmitters in them and they just want to see what are they doing? Are they, how are they moving? What habitats are they using? All this kind of stuff. Yeah, the, the sort of underlying idea was to... ID whether areas of different sizes, different suitability. You know, you've got an area of big area of suitable habitat versus small area of suitable habitat. And this idea of habitat fragmentation and how that's going to impact the uh, snake's movements and potentially how they're selecting for different different areas and habitats within these areas. I feel like, I mean, they mention it in the, in the study that because they only have two sites, they have this like protected area and they have this more agricultural area they're quite limited in what they can say in terms of comparisons but it's nice to get a good baseline of what habitats these snakes seem to be liking and they also get a decent baseline on how far the snakes will leave suitable habitat patches in search for other ones so you can still gauge how connected areas need to be counted as connected for these snakes how willing right. are they to go out into unsuitable habitat with the blind snake hope of finding a new haven for themselves and how willing are they to do that? about one and a half kilometers one and a half kilometers yeah it's a long way for a little snake to slither. there were a couple of individuals that did larger than that but they're sort of highlighting that one and a half kilometers seems to be the uh limit um only 1.5 percent of their instances snake leaving suitable habitat occurred greater than 1.5 kilometers so it really does seem like that's a reasonable limit but there were a few individuals brave individuals that headed as much as uh, 4.6 kilometers out venturing it comes up a lot with animal colonizations where the sort of not default the sort of average movement capacity actually comes up in seed dispersal stuff post-glacial seed dispersal stuff where if you model this is, oh my gosh, this is going back to like what I learned in geography years and years ago, so apologies if I mess this up. But there tends to be a contradiction between what seed dispersal you see today that you can model and simulate today versus the rates of recolonization post-glaciation from tree species and things. Like it look, if you were to look at it today, it looks like they're too slow to like get back to where they should be after a, you know, a glacier has come down and smashed all the trees and sort of changed the landscape. There's a mismatch. And one of the ways people think that that mismatch can be you know, smoothed over, explained, is that you get individuals or you know, renegade seeds or renegade individuals that just tend to go way further. And just a few instances of 
like really far flung dispersal, be that like caused by a dramatic storm or caused by yeah just individual variability, a, a renegade snake. You can sort of kickstart populations much further than you would if you were just to take the mean dispersal capability of these individuals or species. I hope I sort of explained that reasonably okay. <laughs> it's yeah, you know, I'm it's like these Hail Mary instances can rapidly speed up dispersal or connectivity, even if your population, like in this case, only 1.5 kilometers, isn't particularly capable of dispersing to new areas. Mm. I guess all it would take is like one gravid female snake looking for a nesting right. site to just continuously not find anything and just have to go further and further yeah. and further and further. And then if you, know, you happen to have a gravid female that makes a very long journey, that can really boost connectivity, even if on average it would be a lot worse. That being said, hey, if you want to connect fox snake habitat, probably make them connected. <laughs> you know, aim for below one and a half kilometers if you want them to get there. Yeah, I mean, the connectivity of habitats is great for all animals, really. And yeah, yeah, it just looks like there's got, they've just got a big area of agricultural fields to contend with really right. above their sort of suitable habitat. Which they absolutely hated. So they're radio tracking these snakes around. And if, if one thing is very, very clear in this paper, it's that they don't like occupying agricultural areas <laughs> whatsoever. No. They want to stay in their lovely sort of open, open marshy areas. Yeah, open areas are sort of like meadows and things like that, right. aren't they? They like meadows. They like, but they love marshes and agriculture. Mm, no, not really. And that's kind of what's interesting about this peninsula that sticks out into Lake Erie. The Point Pelly National Park is at the very bottom of the peninsula is like this really nice natural habitat. And then you've got a big chunk of agricultural fields. And then you've got another little bit of area above that where it is some suitable habitat and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think I feel like they could do with connecting those two up a bit. Maybe a, a little tract of nice marshland get some along the edge. In, get some like uh, large meadow verges going along field edges. They'll use them, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's that's something that you see again and again in loads of animal movement studies is if you build these corridors, they do tend to use them. Yep. Yeah. Lizards, yep. snakes. Yep. Yeah, you name it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Pedros are so important for that reason. It's just cover. Animals need cover to move, otherwise they get eaten by birds. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the ones that can be eaten by birds, yeah. 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 So, you know, we've got these kind of fox snake populations. They're making a go of it. They're willing to move quite long distances when they need to, but they are sort of limited by the kind of fragmentation of their habitat. Yeah, pretty much. Lass of, lack of connectivity is an issue for them. Yeah, they, they tend to be occupying, what, sort of, 30 to 50 hectares, depending on the area you're picking, with sort of larger areas in that more natural habitat, for whatever reason. This is the thing, it's quite hard to unpick exactly why home range areas may be different in two different areas, you know, natural versus non-natural. You've got arguably, okay, it's a natural area, you would expect higher resources, therefore you would expect lower home ranges because they don't need to go as far to get their resources. But similarly, maybe the natural areas have fewer threats that they have to avoid and therefore they're free to roam more widely they have more space to roam more widely and they don't have fewer to avoid things in the natural or unnatural i'd have said there'd be fewer threats in the unnatural areas because you'd think that it would be less suitable for predators yeah it could be unless they're subject to you know disturbance from people like people being a main threat or there's less cover so there's less shelter from predators that can roam freely between the two i mean you think of something like a kestrel 
or any sort mm. of bird of prey, four kilometers for a cast was nothing. Yeah. So it can be hard to pick apart. And that's what's interesting with these fragmentation questions is it's not necessarily easy to predict what's occurring or what will occur for a given species because there are so many competing drivers. Because arguably, you, you know, you fragment an area and they have to move further to get the same amount of resources or you fragment an area and they're restricted to small areas because they refuse to move to new areas because they're too far away. So there's these, yeah. I think um, they bring it up in the, in the paper, they cite this Farag paper, and there's this idea that you've got this tension between resource availability in a patch and species sort of movement capacity to find a new patch and their willingness to, they call it boundary crossing behavior, like how willing is a species to exit suitable habitat into something else. Because that's like your first hurdle they have to get over. And then they have the movement capacity to like how capable are they of even getting to a new patch if they do exit an initial patch of good habitat. Mm. They're very tricky. Very tricky to unpick. Very, uh, <laughs> gets very complicated very fast. Yeah, yeah. So how much area is your average, at least in this paper, what's the sort of, how much area is a, an average fox snake inhabiting while they're cruising around in the day looking for their mice and occasionally birds to eat how much how much space are they actually I'm not using? sure they give they an overall average but if you were sort of to roughly guesstimate it between the two areas you're looking at like 40 hectares each snake yeah wow that's a lot isn't it but maximum that's 40 rugby pitches <laughs> maximum was it was like uh, 160 that is nutty wow that is a big how area how does that compare wow. to your uh, your escalapians a lot more. Escalapians last year, mm, averaging around three and a half hectares, yeah. but they also live in an area about that size. <laughs> so an area of suitable habitat. Now nah, it's a bit bigger than that, but yeah, it's a very small tract of um, suitable habitat bounded by roads and housing estates. Mm, so. A lot more barriers, a lot more barriers. Yeah. yeah. I'm just wondering, yeah. you know, I only brought that up because I would just assume that these individuals have a, not a dissimilar life history to your I was thinking that the whole time. Like similar sort of mm. latitude, even though your climate's probably a bit gentler in Wales compared to Canada. Yeah. Active foraging colubrids, both, right? Yeah. I mean, fox snakes are called fox snakes, but they are pretty rat snakey. I think um, <laughs> they're willing to go in water if they need to. They're willing to go in bushes and maybe not trees, but certainly bushes if they need to. They, You know, they're eating birds and mammals. They're very Escalapian snakey. You know, they're very much... All of these species, you know, I think you could extend that net to sort of like corn snakes and the other species in the genus Pantherophis. You know, they're all willing to sort of get into it, climb. You find them in chicken coops, you're, you know, they're underground in burrows a lot of the time resting up. I think all of these species are sort of broadly similar in their ecology. Yeah. No, it's certainly there's, there's some nice similar points in this, even compared to king cobras. And I know other snakes where you have this this peak in movement during mating and basically just your, your mating season where there's mm. either nest searching or mate searching and these big long distance movements to find suitable areas or suitable mates and i'm not surprised at all to see that in the fox snake stuff we've seen it in other species it's yeah pretty damn yeah. common <laughs> yeah yeah we we we're seeing it in escalapian snakes too males moving around a lot in the sort of early late spring early summer and they're looking for mates and then 
females suddenly getting interested in moving around when it's time to find somewhere to drop their eggs off. I mean, if we wanted to tie that back into your points you were making before about uh, two populations mixing and stuff, you've got this wonderful case for, well, just look how dramatic their movements can change from, you know, when it actually matters about mixing during mating. Is it's It makes mixing a hell of a lot easier if they're moving further and actively searching as opposed to just bumming around and staying in very localized areas yeah yeah but yeah i think uh this was really fun and it took me down a real interesting rabbit warren about snake taxonomy and we've talked about over splitting in the past and there's the famous example of milk snakes i do think that this is another case of over splitting and i think that sometime in the near future someone is going to formally formally say that but um i don't know i'm just a guy with google so <laughs> if anyone's got and with access to some papers and a and an inquiring mind an inquiring mind but also some like actual formal training at times too like <laughs> yeah, yeah I, have some I am in the process of being formally trained some of these papers are pretty yes, damn dense I let's think, face it yeah they are they are and it is hard going and um you know and uh, you know the paper which all of this splitting is based on came out in the 40s and it was actually originally splitting the population in two completely different ways so i'm quite surprised to see that they've yeah this kind of minor difference between the snakes either side of the mississippi was thought of as a just reason to yeah, I, a lot describe of these, the population on the west is different yeah a lot of these things have a lot of momentum you know like we just had Mate. natrix natrix yeah. split off and stuff like that you know natrix helvetica yeah, got- now in the uk natrix natrix on the continent and you know how long was natrix 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 long yeah. damn time <laughs> these things do take time to change and yeah but it's amazing, like, you read the paper, because there was a paper by Conan in the 1940s that first described the populations east and west, not of the Mississippi River, but the ones east of, like, Erie and then west. Yeah, yeah. And he was talking about the fact that they inhabit different, they have different ecology, you know, they're inhabiting different habitats. But it's like, well, that's because they're in different habitats. Like, that's not a reason that they're different. Like, that's just, the snakes are adaptable. They can just, yeah. they've got a slightly broader habitat. That's that's not like, oh, you know, you find a snake in the woods and then find a snake in the fields. They're not different. They're just capable of surviving in woods and fields. And then that has been yeah. sort of like rewritten, rewritten, rewritten in all these papers ever since. And it was just based on an observation that a guy made in 1940. You know, he's doing his best I mean, <laughs> herpetologist of the time. But that doesn't mean it's actually legit. Yeah, there are so many examples of, not mistakes, because as you say, it's not a mistake. It's a sort of maybe oversimplification or a just best knowledge at the time that gets carried forward. I feel like it's there are plenty of examples in field guides where, you know, you've got very limited space to sort of give people something informative about IDing the species and these little bits of natural history information or, or things that are meant to separate the species gets codified in field guides and it's never re-examined, partly because it's you know, it takes a lot of effort to re-examine these things, but also it just gains its own life and momentum. Hell, the yeah. What's the longest king cobra ever recorded? You asking me? Yeah. Do you remember? I'm telling you, something like four point eight five meters. And you try and right. find the record of that, and you go digging and you go digging, and it's in field guide and it's in field guide, and you go digging and digging, and it turns up in some like it's translated from like a feet and inches, a yard, feet and inches measurement from some colonial era British colonel in India who one of his folks shot a large snake and it's like written down in a diary slash field guide sort of expedition notes somewhere. And it's amazing how those sorts of pieces of information could be carried forward with such confidence or authority when really, yeah, the underlying evidence is 
exceptionally shaky. <laughs> like they didn't even measure the thing. You know, it was like a it was like a visual estimate. It sounds like <laughs> he guesstimated. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, it doesn't it just seem like overkill to shoot a snake as well. Oh, it's unbelievably overkill. It's barbaric. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. But uh, yeah, case in point, case in point, you know, sometimes it just needs a little bit of revisiting. And um, yeah, I'd be really interested to hear what people think about this. But um, yeah, I think that just about concludes our episode on fox snakes, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think the uh, take home is that if you want to connect fox snake habitat, make sure they're less than one and a half kilometers to really allow them to move and uh, give them some meadows. And if you want to sort of concise description of what a fox snake does they're an active foraging snake they're cruising around they're eating mice and birds when they're not doing that they're hiding out in burrows and uh yeah they get around you know you said 40 hectares that's a lot of area yeah yeah i mean it can be (laughs) it can be oh yeah look at me i studied well no i mean like (laughs) this is the thing isn't it you you... yeah like your escalapians i feel like are moving a decent amount for where they where they sort of originated. Yeah, they just kind but of. But when you say it's like forth. a tenth of what we're talking about with these fox snakes, mm. yeah, I mean it's still dramatic. Yeah, yeah, very true. So um, yeah, cool. That's it, I think. So yeah, again, thank you very much to John Faithful Hamer for the suggestion of fox snake, eastern fox snake. That was really really interesting. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can herphighlights at gmail.com. And if you want to become our Patreon, that's patreon.com slash herphighlights, link in the show notes. And we're on social media, so find us on there at herphighlights on Instagram. And yeah, I think that all that remains to be said is thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.